Morning, all. Gilbert, do we have um, slides for this module up there? Is it, am I not? Oh, it's there. I just didn't see it back there. Sorry. <clears throat> Which is fine. For years, we do the, uh, this is the pastoral twist when you keep looking at the slides behind you. Um, all right. Just for the sake of those who are listening later, I need to label this because this is an odd uh, talk today. This is Module 1, Session 12, Part 2. We're doing um, the Book of Ruth today. This module or this uh, session is usually Judges and Ruth, but I took a lot of time on Judges last time. And if uh, anybody who's close to the back could swing the door shut. Oh, already happening. That's good. <clears throat> okay. Um, I want to go through the Book of Ruth with you today because this is, a, I, th- I think, it's one of the most unusual books in all of the Bible and it's very important. It is um, kind of a diamond in the darkness of, of much of the Old Testament and so I wanted to take some extra time today. Let's spend a moment in prayer and get our minds and hearts really focused here. Our Father, we live in the world and in particular, even our culture is one that is drowning us in distraction. We are being entertained to death. We are distracted to no end. Even our cell phones give us a weekly report of how much distraction we went through that week. And so, Lord, um, we ask you that on this Lord's Day, while the New Testament does not prescribe a Christian Sabbath, the concept, nevertheless, is universal throughout Scripture. We pray, Lord, that this would be a day where we stop. We slow our minds down to the things of the world, and we speed them up to the things of God. I pray that even this morning, Lord, here in our Bible Training Institute class, I pray that you would begin to attune our minds to the things of heaven, the things of eternity. And as we look now at the book of Ruth, Lord, I pray that the words that are spoken this morning would encourage our hearts, encourage us to love the book of Ruth, to love your perfect plan for placing this book in exactly the right place at the right time. The story of a wonderful family that is a paradox in a time of darkness. We pray, Lord, that this would be encouraging to all who hear. In Christ's name, amen. So uh, this is one time where I don't normally do this because my assumption is if you're listening to this, you've read the book of Ruth and you kind of know um, the story. Um, But I'm just going to take one minute and go through the story. The book of Ruth basically is the story of the family of Elimelech and Elimelech uh, abandons ship and moves from uh, the area of Bethlehem to uh, the area of Moab because of famine. And while he is there, his two sons die, and he dies. So all the men in the family are gone. Naomi, his wife, then takes one of her daughters-in-law, Ruth, and goes back to Israel. And then you know the story of uh, Naomi and Ruth um, finding, by God's providence, a redeemer, a kinsman redeemer named Boaz. And Naomi has a problem. Her problem is that her family land 
uh, which all families would have, some family land, her family land is in jeopardy because she doesn't have a husband. And so there wasn't a mechanism for her to simply keep that herself. You needed a redeemer to purchase that land. And so Boaz becomes the relative who, who does that. And the way he does that is by marrying Ruth. And so he takes on this family and rescues them in every way possible. So that's the story of Ruth. It's an important book. It's, it's very dear to my heart. I preach through the whole book of Ruth. and I think I call the series God's Work in the World. And I'd encourage you to look through that. Um, I preached it a little bit unusually. I did it biographically. I think we did six messages on all the major characters in Ruth. And so um, it'd be easy to, to listen to. But let's walk through this. And the reason I wanted to take some extra time today is because um, there really are, are some really good implications and applications um, for us with Ruth. So uh, since I can't see what's up there, I'm going to guess. There we go. All right. Uh, let's just do some of the basics first of all. Uh, the title, some Bible books, the title is difficult. Yes. What happened? We're on Judges. Thank you very much. That could have been uh, a really long time with all of you wondering what I'm thinking. There we go. <clears throat> the title in some Bible books are difficult. Um, they, they have differences and things like that. Um, but in Ruth, it's easy. It's always Ruth in the Hebrew Bible and in the Septuagint. This is during the time of the Judges. And it is no accident that Ruth is placed in the canon of Scripture right after the book of Judges. Really, you could put Ruth in the middle of Judges. Uh, You could take, for example, the middle of Judges and just insert the book of Ruth right into it. I think that would would make sense. But there's also um, what's called a canonical connection, meaning that in the Hebrew Bible, the order of books is different. And it's very significant that in the Hebrew Bible, Ruth comes between Proverbs and Song of Solomon. Now, why is that significant? Well, Proverbs ends with Proverbs 31, the the story of a godly wife. In the Hebrew Bible, the book of Ruth happens then, and then Song of Solomon, God's story of marriage, God's view of marital love happens. And so Ruth really is inserted as an illustration of what came before and what comes after. And so that's, that's really important, and I think it's great. Sometime, if you have 30 minutes, and it wouldn't even really take that long, to read Proverbs 31, then Ruth, then Song of Solomon. And you'll get a flavor for what um, the Hebrew Bible would be pushing. This is the story of godly people living during the wicked time of the judges. It is a little diamond in the darkness. Um, They lovingly are establishing a family. They're showing godly character. They're showing faithfulness. And through this family, um, you're bringing God's choice of a king to Israel. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. Let me just give you kind of the context. The end of Judges says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's utter moral chaos. That is America in the 21st century. But that's what uh, was happening. And you turn the page. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Now, this is important. Famine in Israel is always connected to covenant disobedience. So this isn't just, oh, the crops are failing and it's coincidental. No, there is no king. 
Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Why would they expect God to bless them? And so, of course, there's famine. And so we want to make that connection. And when you know the story of Ruth, you, you read through Judges, and you go, this, is, this book just gets worse and worse, and it really does. But then you turn the page, and you have this shining light of Ruth, and it kind of gives you a breath of fresh air. So let's go through the historical and theological themes. Ruth is, honestly, you could preach the whole book just on the theme of the sovereignty of God. I want to read some of these um, to you. We could look at the sovereignty of God in the obstacles that are presented. Chapter 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and the man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The obstacle is continued in verse 4. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years. All kinds of problems associated with that. Verses 11 through 13 of chapter 1. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. So there's no more hope. This is a family that is going to die. And in Israel, that's the ultimate tragedy, a family that is going to stop being. So those are the obstacles. These are under the sovereignty of God. You have the action of God, the action of Yahweh. Chapter 1, verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Now, why had the Lord visited his people? Probably the book of Ruth begins right about the point, you remember the cycles of the book of Judges, right about at the point where the Lord had rescued them in one of those cycles. And so there's a little bit of a break. The action of Yahweh, chapter 4, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went to her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. There you have the action of the Lord in giving her a son. And then you have the answers to prayer. This could be just a long, long discussion. The answers to prayer in the sovereignty of God. Chapter 1, verse 8. Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Now, we don't know what happened to Orpah after she refused to go, but we do know what happened to Ruth. That prayer was answered. Naomi's prayer was answered. Chapter 2, verse 12. This is Boaz speaking. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. That is a a declaration to Ruth and that prayer is answered. You have chapter 2, verse 20. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. That's Naomi praying on on behalf of Boaz. And does that happen? Absolutely. Chapter 3, verse 10. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. That prayer is answered. Chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. Then all the people were, who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, 
who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily of Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Did that happen? Yes. All of those prayers are answered in the sovereignty of God. And of course, verse 14 of chapter 4, Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. So Naomi went from an old widow with no hope whose family was going to die to being a grandmother with a new son-in-law with a whole new hope. And so if you were going to encourage a fellow believer about the fact that God answers prayer, just read through Ruth. It's a, it's a glorious example. But all of this illustrates you have the obstacles that God presents. You have the actions of God. You have the answers to prayer. And the book of Ruth is a tremendous example of the sovereignty of God, that he is in control of all things. Then you have the theme of judgment for covenant unfaithfulness, the judgment of God. And I want to spend a little time on this because the, the text here doesn't state directly that Elimelech and his sons were under the judgment of God, but there's some major clues that they, that they were. Let me give you some of these clues. Instead of crying out to Yahweh in repentance and for help during famine, they left. They went to a foreign land. They went to try to find answers themselves. Chapter 1, verse 1 calls him a man of Bethlehem. And this is important because this is, this is differentiating him from any sort of mass migration that might have been taking place. He wasn't just part of a crowd. He was one man making the decision to basically give up on Israel. He was giving up. He was leaving. Elimelech, his name means my God is the king. He seems to doubt the truth of his own name. Remember in the Old Testament in particular, your name was meant to encourage you. It was meant to let you know who you are. And he should have looked in the mirror as it were, or in the pots and pans, I don't think they really had mirrors, and said, my name is Elimelech. God is my king. But he didn't. We see another clue, Elimelech died in a foreign land. That is considered a curse to an Israelite, to just go off and die somewhere else. His sons married Moabite wives. That wasn't strictly forbidden, but apparently Elimelech didn't see a problem with his sons marrying idol worshipers. That's who they were marrying. They were marrying worshipers of Chemosh, Molech. Another clue, in the 10 years of marriage, neither Malin or Kilian... His two sons were able to father children. Now, this is a big deal. These are young men with two young women. They should have been baby-making machines, but they weren't. They couldn't have kids, either one of them, clearly under the judgment of God. Just even the names themselves, Malin, is derived from Hala, which means to be sick. So his name means sickly, and he probably died of some illness. Killian is from Kala, which means to come to an end, to be finished. And so it could be that these are names given at a later time that, that are repurposed, so to speak. Malin and Killian probably aren't the names that Naomi and Elimelech gave to them, but they became how they were known. Uh, Boaz refers to them by name in chapter 4. Another hint that Elimelech was under the judgment of God, Malin and Killian both died as young men. And according to Deuteronomy 28, that's 
Um, that is part of the curse of covenant treachery. And last but not least, I put this up here too. The curses of Deuteronomy 28, pretty much all of them came true in Elimelech's family. In his individual family. These are the curses upon the unfaithful Jew. And so, does God take the obedience of his people seriously? Absolutely. And because Elimelech gave up on God, gave up on God's plan, his life came apart. And obviously the lesson here is that uh, the believer in Christ who decides I'm going to try to do things my way and I'm going to roll the dice and see what God does, that God's never going to bless that. I don't know why you would think that. Um, the, the pastor, for example, who thinks he can get away with sexual immorality and roll the dice and God is going to still bless his ministry, that, th- why would anybody think that? If you as a married person continue in sins that are, you know are contradictory to a godly, healthy marriage, why would you roll the dice and think that, well, God will bless me anyway? That doesn't even work with our own human parents. And so Elimelech rolled the dice. He thought that by giving up on Israel, giving up on God, going to a different country, things would be different. They were different, all right. He died. God gave up on him. Then you also see the the uh, theme of the providence of God in human affairs. Uh, providence is sort of the behind-the-scenes effect of sovereignty. We could put it that way. There's nothing in the Torah, nothing in the, the Pentateuch that says an Israelite can't marry a Moabite. They're descendants of Lot. You remember this, Abraham's nephew. They're not Canaanites. They're not Canaanites. Now, the Moabites weren't Israel's favorite people. They were considered enemies for the most part. But God providentially brought Ruth, a Moabite, into the picture of redemptive history. And this is absolutely his providence. And we'll see here in a moment that there's a bigger reason for this. Then we have the theme of godly individuals. Godly individuals. And again, if you listen to the sermon series on Ruth that I did, uh, every message highlights one of these individuals. You have Naomi. What's important about Naomi? Well, first of all, she's named first in the book and she's the last one mentioned. The name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife, Naomi. So she's right there at the front and she is right at the end of the book. So she's a major character. The text emphasizes that Naomi's husband and sons died in Moab. It's not, she's very much the center. She's the focus. Elimelech is sort of uh, the, the, the side note. Um, ladies, you know who Martha Peace is, who wrote The Excellent Wife? Uh, I got to be at a banquet with her once, and I was introduced to her husband. And he introduced himself as, I'm Mr. Martha. Because he knew he was following around in her shadow uh, because she was a famous author and, and he was just her husband. I, I don't remember his name because he just introduced himself as Mr. Martha. Wonderful man, godly man. In this case, Naomi is the focus. Elimelech is sort of just the, the way the story gets going. The main chain of events narrated in the book begins with her decision in response to the Lord's action. She's going to go back home. Naomi had a hopeless situation that needed resolution. And the land that she was going to have to sell, that's the main issue that's discussed at the city gate in chapter um, 4. That's, that's the issue. For her to live, for her to have any money, she was going to have to get rid of the family land, which is 
the death knell. That, that's like giving away all of your possessions and eating what you got. So that was a hopeless situation for her. We also see that the child born to Boaz and Ruth is clearly stated to be Naomi's son, sort of an adopted son. And then one of the great things about Naomi is that we see her own spiritual growth. You remember what Naomi means, right? It, it means bitterness. Or, or she names herself. She says, I want to be called bitterness. And so uh, we see her growth. The Naomi in chapter 3 is very different than chapter 2. For example, in chapter 2, she leaves Ruth to her own devices. In chapter 3, she's more helpful. She's giving instructions. And so she goes from being bitter to being joyful. And this is by walking with the Lord and by, um, we can see her failures, of course. She was in such depths of despair that she wasn't able to trust the Lord like she would want to, perhaps. But she gives us hope in that she continued staying faithful and we see her now being blessed at the end of the book. And then, of course, you have, you have Ruth. Now, the book is named after Ruth. I wouldn't necessarily say she's the main character. She is one of several godly characters. Ruth knew to go glean. How did she know to go glean in the fields? Because she knew her Bible. She knew it was legal in the law of Moses. I don't know how she got introduced to uh, the Torah, but she knew that that was okay to do. She got this from, most likely from Naomi, who knew the scriptures and who perhaps passed this information on to Ruth. You also see Naomi instructing Ruth about how to go to Boaz for marriage. And how does Ruth respond? She's humble. She accepts instruction. She's submissive. She's servant-like. There's a reason that the Holy Spirit places the book of Ruth here and that the Hebrew canon places it between the end of Proverbs and Song of Solomon. Because Ruth is the example for both. And a young man uh, could read the book of Ruth and say, I want to have a wife like her. I want to pray for a woman like that. And then you have Boaz. There's 85 verses in the book. 55 of them are conversation. 55 of them are dialogue. So if you were going to put on the book of Ruth as a play, this would be a good low budget play to do because all you need is kind of a background and a bunch of people talking. So it would work really well for that. But Boaz has the most spoken words. He talks more than anybody. He's the answer to Ruth's dilemma. But the real dilemma is Naomi's. You know, Ruth has no rights. She's a, she is a Moabite. She's a foreigner in a foreign land. And she doesn't have any rights. She only is there because she's caring for and loving Naomi. Naomi is the one with the real problem. Naomi and Boaz in the book never speak directly to each other Ruth is the intermediary. Ruth is the solution to the problem that Naomi has and Boaz is the, is the solution that she finds by the providence of God. Now, why is Boaz um, just a wonderful example here? Boaz is a keeper of not only the letter of the law, but of the spirit of the law as well. He keeps the letter and the spirit of the law According to um, what's called the Leverite or Leverate rather um, marriage principle, it was the brother 
of the deceased person who was supposed to raise up offspring for his dead brother. And we've talked about this before. I know in our culture that is very weird for us to have, um, really, my husband died and I have to marry my brother, his brother now? That's odd for us, but that kept land in the family. And so you have to put yourself in the shoes of an ancient Near East family. But Boaz wasn't a brother to Elimelech. He wasn't even the nearest relative. And so he took that law, which didn't technically apply to him, but he applied the spirit of the law. And he said, there's nobody that's worthy to save this family. I'm going to step in and do it. I think that's a, a great example for us. Then you have the theme of redemption. And I believe I listed some, some references up there. Some have said that redemption is the theme of the book of Ruth. I think it is a theme. It is a very good theme. Um, <clears throat> Ruth is often preached uh, with Boaz as a type of Christ, as a redeemer, a kinsman redeemer. In fact, there's some a goel in, in Hebrew. There's, a, there's some similarities in predictions of Christ as a redeemer as well. And certainly he provides a great example for that. I don't think the purpose of the book of Ruth is to show Boaz as a type of Christ. Uh, we've talked about this when we, when, or we will talk about this when we get into Bible study methods, but a type of Christ, one that is a direct model of Christ, uh, really we want to narrow that definition to those that are named as such in the New Testament. Um, there's great examples. Uh, Joseph, for example, a great example of Christ, he's never named as a type. And so we want to be very clear about that. Moses is named as a type of Christ. Noah is named as a type of Christ. And who's the most famous type of Christ? Adam. He is the sort of opposite of Christ in many ways, and yet a type as well. That's just a side note. However, that being said, the picture of redemption in the book of Ruth is absolutely accurate as a, in terms of what it looks like for Christ to redeem us. Ruth had no rights. She had no claims. What was she? She was a foreign idol worshiper. What had Israel been called to do with those? Either kill them or drive them out. Now, again, the Moabites were not, they were not Canaanites, but they were still idol worshipers. She had no rights. She had no claims. She had no reason for God to pay attention to her whatsoever. She brought no merits. She brought nothing to the table except hopelessness and degradation, being a young widow who had no children, and yet the Lord saves her and turns her into one of the most celebrated women in all the history of Israel. So absolutely, the theme of redemption, while maybe not the main thrust of Ruth, it is a, it is a terrific illustration of how God redeems. And then the last theme we'll look at is the plan of God. Why would we say that redemption is not the main theme of Ruth. Well, we want to keep in mind that God doesn't just drop books of the Bible into the Bible to give us one big illustration. Uh, For example, Song of Solomon. I take the view that Song of Solomon is about human marriage. There are a lot who who disagree with that and they say it's about Christ in the church. Frankly, that that application of Song of Solomon is only a couple hundred years old. So the application of Song of Solomon as about human marriage is as old as the book itself. That's what Jews believed it was about. And so is Song of Solomon just dropped into the Bible as, oh, this, here's a book about marriage? No, not at all. Song of Solomon is set into the context of a faithful Jew 
who is obeying the Lord in all areas of life, here is how you obey the Lord in the area of your marriage, which is part of living a life of holiness. And so it's set into that, uh, that larger context. Well, what about Ruth? Is Ruth just a book just set there uh, uh, about redemption? Oh, isn't that a nice story, a nice illustration? No, there's a bigger purpose. What is happening during the book of Ruth? We're in this dark, horrible time in the book of Judges where, where the nation is getting worse, the judges are getting worse, the sins are getting worse. And yet you have Ruth. What is it that happens several times in the book of Judges? We hear, in those days there was no king in Israel. What does that mean? It means the book of Judges is meant to push you toward, boy, we need a king, boy, we need a king, boy, we need a king. And then Ruth is placed in here, And the end of the book tells us the plan of God. Obed, who was the son that Ruth and Boaz had, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. And so Ruth now becomes the bridge from the darkness of the judges to the light of a godly king. And David, of course, still is not adequate. He is a man after God's own heart, but he's a sinful man. And so David then becomes the bridge to whom? To the son of David. And so Ruth is uh, really all about the plan of God. The sovereignty of God is not just, we don't want to reduce it to, oh, well, God was sovereign in the lives of Boaz and, and Ruth and Naomi. No, God is being sovereign in the life of the world. He's being sovereign in his redemptive plan. Put it this way, without Malin and Killian and their disobedience without Elimelech and their disobedience, then Naomi and Ruth and Orpah would not be in that situation that they were in. And without Ruth doing the unthinkable and saying, no, I'm not going to go home to my parents where I can have safety, security, money, and whatever I need. I'm going to go back with you and be a degraded widow along with you in a foreign land. And if she, hasn't, if she doesn't do that, we don't have Obed, we don't have Jesse, we don't have David. And if we don't have David, we don't have who? Christ. So this young lady being willing to go be obedient to the Lord in very difficult circumstances. You think about all the, all the little tiny threads that the plan of God seems to hang on and that at any time if somebody had just clipped one of those threads, the rest of it falls. But nobody's going to clip the thread of the sovereign plan of God. So that's why when you read Ruth, you just you, you enjoy the characters, but you also look at the big picture, the plan of God. Okay, those are the, the historical and theological themes. Let's do the purpose now. And I'm going to spend some time on this. Yahweh sovereignly, but in a hidden way, affected the birth of his king through the actions of his people. And we just really talked about that. Yahweh sovereignly, but in a hidden way, affected the birth of his king through the actions of his people. Now, the, the major theme, a major theme rather in the book of Ruth are the characters. I preached it that way. That's not the primary purpose. His goal is broader uh, than that. And we just talked about that a second ago. He focuses on the life of one particular family. And yet it's that family that provides the bridge to his, uh, his bigger purposes. So we really, really talked about the purpose already. Let's do the literary structure. And again, I, I think I say this every time we get to the literary structure of a book. 
Let it be okay to be enamored by this. Let it be okay to study structure, to study outlines of books and to look at them. I would encourage you before, every time before you read a Bible book, get out a commentary or find an outline of the book because you'll see that every book of the Bible has a unique and beautiful structure because it is from God. God is an organized God. God is a a God of uh, order. The literary structure of Ruth is considered even by even by unbelievers to be a masterpiece. It is absolutely focused. It is it is tight. There's only eighty um, something verses, and yet it presents this amazing story. And I can't remember with this crowd if we've talked about chiastic structure or not. So let's just assume we haven't. The chiastic structure looks sort of like this. Um, uh, it, it's named after the what we would look like the letter X in Greek. It's chi or ki, um, and it's half of it. Can you see half of an X right here? So make the full X, and there's half of it. So what the chiastic structure basically says is that the high point of the story is in the middle. That is a, a very classic biblical structure. There, there are chiastic structures, chiasms, all over the Bible. Um, Jesus even has some of his sayings are in, in short chiastic structure. And so what's useful about this is it tells you kind of the, the high point of the story. But this is absolutely um, a genius structure because it's not just that a bunch of stuff happens, then there's a high point, and a bunch of more stuff happens. A chiastic structure is a mirror image that there are similarities, and I'll just show you this. Um, we've labeled these A. You have family history, the family of Elimelech. At the bottom, A1, family history, the family of Elimelech's kinsman, Boaz. Back up to B, the women of Elimelech's family and the questioning of Bethlehem. B1, near the bottom, the men of Elimelech's family and the blessing of, Beth- the blessing of Bethlehem. You go back up to C, you have a scene in the barley field. And in that barley field, Ruth leaves Naomi. Ruth and Boaz are in the barley field and Ruth presents food to Naomi. And then C1, Naomi dispatches Ruth. Ruth and Boaz are at the threshing floor and Ruth presents food to Naomi. You see the similarities here between that C, for example, and that C? And so all of this, C and C1, they, that forms the center of the story. Now, sometimes a, a, this happens to be a, an even number of outlines. Sometimes right here, perhaps there might be a D that is the more focused center. But in this case, C and C1 form the center. So what's amazing about this is that this wasn't a story that some guy just sat down and said, I think I'm going to write this amazing story in the chiastic structure. No, this is how it actually happened. So why this is important is that it's not that it was written in chiastic structure, it's that it, was, it happened in this way. That God orchestrated it. God orchestrated it in a way that would be beautiful in written form. That is phenomenal. And I hope that that encourages your heart that the word of God is living and active. It is absolutely perfect. Okay, let's do um, a couple of interpretive issues. 
Actually, there's, there's a kind of one big one. What sort of woman was Ruth? Or what happened at the threshing floor? And if you remember the story, Boaz, this is during the harvest, and he's asleep at the threshing floor. By the way, he was a very good boss. He didn't go back to his house during harvest. He stayed with his men, and he was going through what they went through. But she goes to him in the middle of the night, and she uncovers his feet. She lies down with him. Now, there are other places in the Bible that feet are a euphemism for other more personal parts of the body. And so there's a couple of views of this. The first view is that Ruth is aggressive and she's inappropriate. That's actually a fairly common view. She's uncovering part of him. She's uncovering his feet. Who knows what that means? And she's lying down next to him. And some have said that she's using her womanly wiles to attract him. That's the first view. It would seem a little odd, if that's correct, that the book of Ruth is placed between Proverbs 31 and Song of Solomon as a woman of virtue, so that alone helps us understand that that view is incorrect. The second view, Ruth was a woman of character. She was a woman of character, and she acted appropriately. Chapter 3, verse 11. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Worthy. It's a word that means noble. It's the same word used, by the way, in Proverbs 31, that, you, that she is an excellent wife. It's the, Hebrew, it's the same Hebrew word, a worthy wife, a noble wife. So why these terms, uncover and feet and lie down? Why is that there? Well, very simply, because that's what happened. Why did she do these things? Now, Boaz has already noticed Ruth, that, that's not an issue. Chapter 2, verse 5. Then Boaz said to his young men who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. And so he notices her. He begins to have conversations with her really over a period of, of time. The preparation of Ruth in chapter 3 is preparation for marriage. The way she's preparing um, <clears throat> for this meeting is not to seduce somebody, but it's a, more of a preparation to be married. So we would understand uh, her actions as something that was um, upright, that was good. But here's the big one. People say, well, why did she go to him at night? Why did she go to him at night? Well, let's talk about this. Boaz has had eight weeks with Ruth. Every day, barley harvest all the way through the wheat harvest. And what has Boaz done? Absolutely nothing. He hasn't touched her. In fact, he's instructed his young men to protect her. That she is to be protected. She is to be treated with, with kindness. And so, Naomi has this daring plan. And her plan is that, um, that Ruth is going to take the initiative in talking about marriage. And this just simply wasn't done. And so, this is important for Naomi because Naomi is desperate. She has one shot for her family to not die and she believes Boaz is that one shot. And so she hatches this plan. All Naomi is doing is telling Ruth to propose marriage. But in chapter 3, verse 9, 
Ruth brings up another issue. He said to her, this is when they're together, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant. And here's the issue she brings up. For you are a redeemer. Meaning, legally, in the letter and of the law and the spirit of the law, you are the one who can save my family. And so she is, she is not proposing anything immoral. She's proposing that he obey God and that he be that one who would rescue the family. Now, What's significant about this? Ruth loves Naomi and she is willing to save Naomi by going to Boaz who would have been significantly older than her, by the way. And he says that uh, he blesses her. Uh, you have made this last kindness greater than the first and you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. So why uncover his feet? A lot of ink has been spilled over this issue uh, on both, both sides of the view. This would have been Late at night and in Israel, nighttime, even in the summertime, can get really cold. Why uncover his feet? Because he would wake up. It's very simple. She uncovers his feet. He's going to wake up and she has not touched him. She has not touched him. And she's lying down at his feet. What does that mean? It means, uh, ladies, not to, not to be overly personal, but your, the feet of your husband... Is that the place you really want to be most of the time? No, laying down at somebody's feet says, I'm not trying to do anything personal or immoral or inappropriate. I'm laying down at the ugliest part of yourself, basically. And so she keeps her distance there. She's next to him, but she's at his feet. What is this about? She's proposing marriage and basically she's saying, you are a redeemer, meaning will you purchase Naomi's land? And I will be part of the deal. And so this is absolutely amazing. This is not about immorality. This is about Ruth understanding the law of God and asking Boaz to obey the law in a way that is upright, that is holy, that is righteous. Why is Ruth throwing herself into the deal? Is she just kind of acting like a bargaining chip? Hey, if you buy Naomi's land, I am part of that deal. No, if if Boaz buys Naomi's land, that doesn't do anything because there's nobody to pass the land onto. And so Ruth is saying, I will be the one to provide you sons so that this land that is now becoming yours and staying in Naomi's family can be passed down from generation to generation. So when little David is pasturing his flocks, whose land is he on? He's on Naomi's land. He's on Ruth's land. He's on the land of Boaz. And so when you read in 1 Samuel about the raising up of David and how he is uh, keeping these flocks, just remember, he's on land that Boaz saved because Ruth, in godly and righteous fashion, went and said, I will be the one to make this happen. I will be your wife. And she gives up whatever dream she may have had. She already married a young man. That didn't go well. Now she's marrying better. She's marrying for spiritual reasons. She's marrying a man of God, not a man who is young and good looking, which is always a, a better choice. So there we are with Ruth. We've got a couple of extra minutes, so I wanted to see if you have any questions. I love this book. I, I hope you cherish it as much as I do. So uh, questions on the book of Ruth or any comments even, just raise your hand and then I'll repeat your question for the recording. Yeah, Nate.
There is, uh, so the question is, any indication that Boaz uh, had ever been married? Um, <clears throat> with as much detail as this story goes into about family trees, uh, it's probably pretty unlikely. I think that would have been mentioned. And that would have brought a whole other set of problems because if he had been married before, almost certainly he would already have children which would now render this a difficult problem. Um, Why is that a difficult problem? Uh, You remember that there was a relative closer to Boaz, uh, to Naomi, and um, he was about to buy the land. Then Boaz said to him, the day you buy the field, and I like to use an ominous voice with this, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Why did the Redeemer say, whoop, I'm out? Because he already had kids. And so Boaz would have had the same problem. Boaz didn't have the problem. He was like, hey, I'm middle-aged and single. And so he could step in. So, no, I don't think he was married. That was a long answer. Yeah, Joe. Sure. So the, the, the land, let's just, let's track the land. First of all, your land was everything. Uh, your, your land was your IRA. It was your 401k. It was your children's future. Um, your land is where your business was. It was where you kept flocks. And think about this, by the way, um, I'm going to digress for a minute. I promise I'll get to your question. The millennial kingdom, I, I don't mention that very much. The millennial kingdom in the Old Testament, over and over and over again, it speaks of it being agricultural. What is the blessing in the millennial kingdom? Every man under his fig tree, every man with his own vine, every man with crops, every man with his animals. What is the amazing thing about an agricultural lifestyle? You plant a few seeds and you get rich. You Uh, have a bunch of animals out in the field. You just wander them around. They eat food that's free. They drink water that's free. They reproduce money, basically. And so land is everything. Land is where you gain your wealth. It's where you um, make your mark in this world. So let's track the land. Elimelech has family land. He leaves that land because there's a famine. What does that mean? Why would any man leave his farm? Because you can't grow anything on it. He's not growing anything. His animals are dying. And so he leaves his land. It doesn't mean the land is bad. It means that Elimelech is bad. Because God is the one who blesses the land. And so Elimelech leaves. You have this plot of land near Bethlehem. That's just sitting there. He goes off. Elimelech dies. The land now passes to Naomi. Who has two daughters-in-law who are both widows. And she has no sons. And they have no sons. So what's going to happen to that land? It, it'll, she'll have to use it to live on. Not to live on in terms of, uh, I'm going to have my animals here and I'm going to run the farm. She wasn't capable of doing that. She's an old woman. So what was she going to have to do? She was going to have to sell the land, which to an Israelite is like selling a child. She was going to have to sell it and then uh, she, she didn't have an investment ad- advisor. You didn't take a chunk of money and go and invest it and, and earn interest in a way that we might think of it today. That, that was possible, but not for a widow. And so she was going to live on that money until she ate it. And so it was, it was terrible. So now the land belongs to Naomi, but she's going to have to go back. Why did she go back to Bethlehem? Probably to sell the land. 
and to, to seek her fortune in some other way. Now Boaz comes along. Boaz is a family member through Elimelech. And if Boaz buys the land, then that keeps the land. Technically, in Elimelech's family, Naomi should benefit and uh, Ruth should benefit. And by the way, if Orpah had come along, we never hear from her again. If she had come along, she would have benefited, but she didn't. And so now the land is back in the family or, or is kept in the family. And Boaz now owns, along with Naomi, that land. And they even think of it in terms of, well, I own the land and you're just my family member. It was family land. And so because of that, that land staying there because Boaz uh, kept it, he has a son named Obed who raises his flocks and his crops on that land, who has a son named Jesse who raises his flocks and his crops on that land, who has a bunch of sons, eight of them. And the last one, David is the one that they send out to keep the flocks. And so David is on the land redeemed that used to be Elimelech's, became Naomi. She was going to lose it. Boaz got a hold of it, kept it in the family. Four generations later, we see, Bo, we see David out there with his little sheep. So does that track the land? Got it. All right. Any other questions? I feel like a real estate agent up here. It's a... Oh, there's several in the room. Sorry. That's a... <laughs> I just realized that. <clears throat> we love real estate agents here. What else? Any other questions on Ruth? Okay, I'm going to ask you one. For those of you who have read Ruth recently or have a good memory of it, how has it impacted you? What has it meant to you? You don't have to give a scholastic answer, just give a Christian answer. How, how has Ruth impacted you? I'd love to hear that. Joe. His, the relationship he has with his people, he will always he will always answer the prayer of the of the humble. And that's boy, we learned that from Ruth. She's uh, Ruth is one of those few Bible characters that you can't find a single flaw. Uh, Joseph is one. Daniel is one. Ruth is one. There's a few of those. The Bible presents most people in all their all their dark and good parts, but not Ruth. She's just all all uh, all good. An idol worshiper who becomes. By the way, listed in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. So, good, good observation. What else? David. There's always a plan for our lives, even if it's beyond our years or if it's something uh, we can't see or understand. Yeah. There's always a plan. There's always a plan. I, I don't know how long Ruth lived, and she probably didn't live to this point, but the day that King David was crowned king of Israel... First, he was king of uh, part of Israel for about seven years. Then finally, he's crowned the king of all of Israel. And the day that he um, dances into Jerusalem and establishes his capital. Can you imagine Ruth going, (laughs) I was a Moabite with hopeless, no hope whatsoever. And now my great grandson is leading Israel into God's city. Wow, That's, that's pretty good. That's a great hope, David. Any other observations? What was encouraging to you? Yes. The importance of the sad shows in that in that book. Absolutely. Absolutely. So Larry's point is that uh Chesed, 
loving kindness, the mercy of God, the, the covenant love shows through here. This is, I, I, this really is, you don't have to look for it. It's just all over the place. And it is uh, challenging to us, um, not only to receive that, but probably to show it too, I would think. And Rebecca, you had a, you had a thought? It's un- the, the point is Ruth's humility and how she put her own desires aside. And think about this. Obviously, she and Naomi were close. I mean, they, they'd known each other for 10 years. But what was Naomi acting like? In chapter one, Naomi's probably no easy person to be around. She's bitter. She's mad. She's, she's just feeling sorry for herself. And yet Ruth says, no, I'm going to go help you. I'm going to be with you. She could have gone home to mom and dad and been totally fine. But she said, no, I'm going to go with you. And um, following the Lord is always better. By the way, one little lesson in Ruth that we didn't get to talk about is um, this classic line that Ruth refuses to go. And she says, and this is a picture of conversion, by the way. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. That's a picture of a change of loyalty that I don't belong to the world anymore. I belong to the people of God. And so for her, as a converted uh, woman of faith, probably going with Naomi, yes, it was selfless. Um, and yes, there was humility to it. But for her, it was probably a sense of, why would I stay with the idol worshipers? I'm not like them anymore. I want to go to where God's people are. And so she goes with Naomi. So uh, that's a picture of conversion right there in my book. So... Well, let's go ahead and pray. I hope you've enjoyed, Ruth. I I have enjoyed talking to you about it. Let's pray for a moment. We thank you, Father, for this time we've had together. We thank you for the fact that we are able to meet, that we are able to be together, Lord. We think of those in our uh, neighboring country of Canada right now, Lord, that are undergoing clear and open persecution. We think of those that this very day will likely be arrested for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ to your people. And we think of the, the clear aim at Christians. And Lord, we thank you for the fact that we can just sit here in this room together and enjoy your word. We pray for our brothers and sisters who are elsewhere who are having to make a harder stand. And so, Lord, may we never take for granted this opportunity to meet together, to be the ecclesia, to be the gathering, the assembly of God's people. Let your word this day, Lord, bless our hearts. Let us be inspired to love you, to, to be those who are, act in covenant faithfulness, who demonstrate the chesed love that you have given to us so freely. We thank you for the book of Ruth and the example of grace, the example of redemption, and the example of your sovereign plan. I pray that it blesses our hearts, blesses our minds to trust you, Lord, in those little tiny things in our lives that seem so overwhelming at times. Lord, we thank you for the upcoming time of more formal worship where we will present our hearts, our minds to you. And we pray that you would be pleased with our worship for it is in Christ's name we pray, amen.